Well, good morning, everyone. It's a great privilege to bring you a glorious passage to have a look at, but we need God's help to look at it. So shall I pray for us? Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and enlighten our hearts and minds as we meditate on your word, knowing that these glorious truths can really only be absorbed and actioned in our lives with your help. But we thank you that you are here to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today in our series on seeking spiritual renewal and revival, we are looking at a well-known and a precious passage in Ezekiel, God's promise of a new heart and spirit to his people. This is one of those passages that we have the privilege of appreciating from this side of Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. And also knowing that God would make available from the time of the giving of his Holy Spirit, giving his Spirit, gives us a unique perspective on what is being promised here. So firstly, just a tiny bit of background to our passage today. Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet who had been living in Jerusalem and he was one of the company of approximately 10,000 Hebrew people who were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar after the siege on Jerusalem and they were together led to Babylon. The very shorthand summary of the book is that Ezekiel shows that Israel deserved the judgment of being in exile and then that God's justice creates hope for their future restoration. That's really the the very short, crude version of Ezekiel. But we land more than halfway through chapter 36 where God is about to act to vindicate his name. And we might ask, why does the all-powerful God of the universe and of the Hebrew people need at this point in history to act for his name's sake? It wasn't in our reading this morning, but if you were able to look back in verse 20, it says this, But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? The exiled people of Israel would have travelled close to or through different territories on their terribly gruelling journey to Babylon. And you could probably have heard these sorts of conversations or comments as people saw them pass through. So who are these people then passing through? Ah, they're Israelites from the land of Judah apparently. They've come from Jerusalem where Nebuchadnezzar captured the city. Ah. So what's the name of their God then? Yahweh, I believe. Not much of a God then. If Yahweh lets Yahweh's people be captured and expelled from Yahweh's land. Glory to Marduk. 
God was not going to let his name be sullied and mocked anymore. He would act for his namesake. And we might hear that and ask what happened to God's compassion for his people. He's going to act to vindicate and restore the glory of his own name. But what about the Hebrews? God's own people who are now prisoners of war. When you read the book of Ezekiel, you don't hear much about God's compassion for his people. And in this passage in particular, you hear how God, God's primary concern is vindicating his name. In the book of Ezekiel, there seems to be that silence in regards to God's love and compassion for captive Israel. However, we forget that God's people have had no regard for God or his name or his good commands for a good long time now. And really, at this point, they have forfeited any rights to God's compassion for them. They shamefully trampled underfoot God's kindness and his patience and his warnings and instead ignored him and went after worthless idols, disobeyed his law, and did shameful things right under God's nose. Why should he have any compassion on them now? And yet, despite all this, amazingly, God would restore his people. But he must also be just and holy and keep his word to them that there were consequences for their rebellion and their idolatry. What is quite extraordinary, though, is that because he loved them in the first place and because his justice demanded that he let them be taken into exile as judgment, he knew that that would also bring dishonor to his own name. But he would let his name be sullied and dishonored in order to discipline his people whom he loves. But now he's going to act. And there are two things that he must deal with here. One is, as we just stated, the reestablishment of his own holy name in the eyes of the nations. But the other is to establish a solution, the promise of a solution to the constantly wayward and wicked hearts of his own people. In the text... What God will promise to do for, for and in his people is surrounded before and after, and you would have noticed this in the text, by the reminder that God is acting for the sake of his own name here. And he will do it through what he does with his people. In the second half of verse 23, he says, And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Like what an incredible act of grace that this rebellious people who have had no regard for God's name will now be used by God to show to the nations his holiness. It's not a plan I would have come up with. So what is the hope that God here holds out for his people? 
What is the new covenant promise being made here that will one day be fulfilled in the times of the New Testament and that we can enjoy now? Well, firstly, it's the need for forgiveness. The people of Israel needed forgiveness and we are just the same. We all have a record before God and we all needed some way to have that dealt with. And in verse 25, God makes the first of a number of declarations of his actions. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And we might ask why God didn't just say here that he would wash them clean rather than sprinkle them clean. Washing sounds a bit more thorough, especially considering what the children of Israel have done. And if you're really dirty, a sprinkle you wouldn't think is going to cut it. But God's language here is very deliberate. Sprinkling with water would have brought back the memory of the rituals of both water and blood that were used by the priests to pronounce forgiveness and the making to be clean. The Israelite people had done atrocious things in their idol worship and their ignorance of God's laws. Or I should say not ignorance, their ignoring, deliberate ignoring of God's laws. Before God, their sin was filthy, it was defiling, it was unclean, and it could not be ignored against God's burning white holiness. But you could say that we're all in that boat. Nothing is hidden from a holiness that pierces through our every intention, thought, and action. God says here that he will cleanse all that sin. But that still leaves the source of it as a problem. Something has to change from the inside of us. What is so beautiful here in the promise of verse 26 is that God now goes to the literal heart of the problem, the human heart, and says he will do something about it. He will give a new heart and he will put a new spirit in us something that we couldn't have done ourselves and something that the children of Israel couldn't have done themselves in Hebrew thought all of our human faculties are identified a level lower than we might in our western thinking and what I mean is that we might attribute to our mind um, what we might attribute to our mind in terms of thinking Uh, willing or deciding in Hebrew thought it's taken down a level and it's attributed to the work of the heart and what we would attribute to the heart you know the emotions motivations aspirations they're all taken down another level in Hebrew thought to that of the spirit so what God is going to give here is a new way to think the work of the heart and a new way to feel the work of the Spirit. Now, some of you may have experienced this. For some people, the change can be quite sudden when they first come to Christ. There is the big or noticeable change in their thinking and what they feel. It's maybe best described by what God says next. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God promised there would come a day when a person could be made new and when that happened, there would be a complete change in the spiritual orientation towards God. Essentially what the people of Israel needed and what we need is a heart transplant. You may have heard of the very occasional instances of people who have had physical heart transplants finding themselves in the weeks after surgery with a change in some of their likes and dislikes. And even very rarely, there can be a change of personality. One of the most famous stories comes from the 1997 memoir of the late Claire Sylvia, who had been a former professional dancer. Following her heart transplant surgery, she found herself with desires that she had never had before, namely an unexpected desire for beer and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Her family actually even commented that she walked a little differently. And so needing to find out why was she experiencing these changes, she found out that her heart donor had been an 18-year-old man killed in a motorcycle accident. And the family were able to confirm that he loved those foods. He loved beer and he loved Kentucky Fried Chicken. And what I didn't put down here but found in another account was he loved curvy blondes as well. And she found this unusual desire when she had this new heart for that as well. Very weird. They made a movie out of her experience in 2002 called Heart of a Stranger. Now, these experiences turned out to be more frequent than expected. The phenomenon itself has come to be described as cellular memory, a kind of memory that follows an organ, in this case a heart, into its new body. God gives much more with the transplant of his new heart into his people. With the new heart he gives, there are new appetites and new desires, God's own desires. We get God's heart. God puts in us a new way of thinking and a new way of feeling, a new way of seeing the world. The old heart of stone, our insensitivity, our resistance, our disinterest, our coldness to anything of God is replaced with the soft, the warm, the alive, the sensitive desire for the things of God. And the way he makes this change in us is by putting his own spirit in us, as it says in verse 27. And by doing that, he will cause his people to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. And this is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 8. Those who are living according to the Spirit because he lives in them will have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. It is God's own work to make us alive to the things of the Spirit. And in verse 9 of Romans 8, we heard the title of the Holy Spirit interchanged, you might have noticed, with the title the Spirit of Christ, And this tells us even more about the function of the Spirit in us. He is there 
to form Christ in us. He is there to grow us into the image of God's Son. He is there to help us to treasure Christ like we should. He changes and continues to change the affections in us from cold disinterest in Christ in that old heart of stone to finding in him more and more that he is our pearl of great price. He is the treasure of our souls. And this is what he wants for his, the, his people in Ezekiel. Now, just so that we're clear here, Ezekiel and the Apostle Paul use different words for flesh. The flesh that the Apostle Paul talks about in our Romans reading makes it clear that it is hostile to God because of its wrong desires. It is based in the desires of the unregenerated human In Ezekiel, the heart of flesh is contrasted in a good way, though, with the heart of stone, because the heart of flesh is now the soft and the alive heart to the things of God. The other thing that strikes me when I read this passage from Ezekiel, and you can go back and read this yourself and notice this, is some of the language of the gospel that reminds us that God is acting sovereignly to transform and deliver his people. For one thing, he's doing what they could not do themselves. But there are a series of I will statements that tell us God is acting despite the condition of his people. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I deliberately skipped one very important I will in there that occurs right in the middle of the passage And I believe that it shows that God has not forgotten his compassion for his people. Even though we may see God acting in vindication for his name, he has not forgotten his compassion for his people. And it is the continuation of a promise made long ago to the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. You shall be my people and I will be your God. God's desire to be with his people is still very much alive. And at the same time, as he vindicates his name, he promises he will make a people with new hearts and spirits with whom he can dwell. God does the work of giving us a new heart with new loves and new desires because by the work of Christ at the cross, to forgive our sins and cleanse us, He's made us fit to be the dwelling place of his spirit. We have seen more of the fulfillment of the making of new hearts and spirits than Ezekiel got to see. But we still look forward to the final fulfillment of the promises that God will dwell with his people forever. 
and we hear it at the end of Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What a day that will be. Amen.